just so y'all will know that that's, uh, yeah, we're, we're live streaming. Um, some of y'all said, hey, we're traveling. We want to be connected. And so, um, and, and so we want to um, make sure that um, we're going to test it for a couple months and just see if it's helpful for folks. So if it is, let us know. If it's not, we'll shut it down. Um, we just want to make sure that um, we're giving as many inroads to community and to relationships in this place. And sometimes when you're gone, just having the continuity of that is, is helpful. Um, and so we're going to test drive that. I don't know why, like, D, do we, well, I don't want to, we just need to remove. Are y'all scared? I, was, I don't spit that much, but okay. Um, yeah, so we'll do that. And, um, um, and so if, that's, it's af, if that is helpful, then, uh, then please, uh, please let us know. Um, we are in the season of, uh, of Lent, and Lent is... Um, it's this weird, it means spring basically, but I mean, it's, I don't know if y'all have religious upbringings like I did, but usually Lent felt like it meant, oh, this is, this might suck a little, you know, um, which, which is really about like withholding and deprivation and we're going to go into the wilderness and, you know, it's like, you know, becoming like SEAL Team 7 for Jesus or something, right? I don't know what like, like images it brings up for you, um, but we're going to uh, approach Lent from this year from really the way that we've been approaching spirituality as we have um, from the beginning here to ask, what does it mean to step into this space um, if it was to mature us? What if this season in the life of the church um, was not to remember that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God? <laughs> But what if there are seasons that are set up in the life of uh, religious institutions, maybe the seasons even of, uh, of the way that our um, ecology works in the world? And those seasons are to remind us and to draw us into a deeper space and place. And so what would it be like if um, Lent was here to give us tools and to mature us? Um, to set us free a little more. For as my spiritual director says, um, to create more interior freedom within us. Um, how many of us this morning could use just a little more interior freedom? Anybody here? Can I get, okay. The rest of y'all are lying. They didn't have your hands up, so. I just feel like, like there is that deep sense is that we come into spaces like this and we enter into relationships so that we might experience more interior freedom. Um, because the front of our quilts, I don't know about y'all, the front of our quilts often look really good. The back of our quilts, not so good. It can be a mess. I was talking to a friend um, as they came in this morning and realized that, you know, if you ask me how I'm doing at a 30,000 you know, level, it's like, I'm, I'm doing good. If you bring that camera angle down a little, you know, a little farther, <laughs> you bring it down to about a, a 10,000 foot level and it's just a dumpster fire in places in my life, right? And so what we're attempting to do is to allow the Spirit of God to descend into the places in our life that um, we're not exactly always sure what to do with or um, how to share or how to be in those places. Um, and I'm just convinced um, that 
I'm convinced that if we don't begin to reimagine our spiritual lives, um, it's not worth it just to mouth things that we believe to hope that maybe some Harry Potter thing out there will zap us at some point. Um, that there will be some kind of magic thing that if you say the right terminology in the right way and feel bad at whatever those things are. I think that actually the spiritual life is a summonsing to a way of living together that leverages more freedom in our life. And so when Jesus descends, that whole kind of idea of Jesus descending into our own humanity is not to zap us, it's to show us, as Paul says, a more excellent way. And so we're going to go on a journey together. That's why in the beginning of this, or in the middle of this last week, we had Ash Wednesday. I don't know if any of y'all participated or showed up at the, uh, at the store somewhere and saw somebody with a, a black cross on their head, right? And you know, oh yeah, it's lit. Um, really, that is, as we talked about last week, and you can, um, um, you can jump back into those uh, on the podcast if you want to. We talked about, really, the, the fact is that we have to remember often that we're, we're going to die. And that's not so that you can get all depressed. It really is so that we can ask a set of questions that says, how are you living right now? The way that you are holding things, the way that you're expending your one and only life, is this the life you want? Because I don't know about y'all, we can just kind of um, lather, rinse, repeat our life to oblivion. We can think, well, this is just how it is, and we lock it down. And I think part of the, um, the culture that we're in begins to say that really let's look at your success, let's look at the things you have to do, let's just get busy. And we get busy doing life. We pop up somewhere and we think, is this how I want to be living? And so partly these seasons of the life of the church are so that we might um, attend to more of the inner voice. What is my soul requiring of me? Um, what... Um, what ways am I living um, that I just feel trapped in? Those are really important questions. Um, often when those things come up from the bottom of my life, I'll turn the volume up in my life so I don't have to square off with them because I don't know how else to do it. Um, and um, what we're finding here is that in the midst of all of those things that each of us are struggling with, there is a deep space of God's grace um, and uh, vulnerability in that place. And so um, on this, um, I'm, gonna, um, I'm just going to go ahead and let's just jump into Scripture. This is, um, Larry, would you read this for us? Um, this is Larry. Can you all say hi, Larry? Hi, Larry. All right. This, this, uh, this comes out of the, uh, uh, the first chapter of Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, 
The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Thanks, Art. Um, I remember when I was baptized. Y'all, any y'all remember when you were baptized? If you weren't baptized as an infant, uh, for me it was uh, 1975. Uh, <laughs> And my parents uh, had become Christians in the Jesus movement in Dallas, Texas, which was basically just, I think, uh, a good way for Christians to be able to smoke a lot of weed and still uh, sing a lot. So, at least that's what I gather from uh, some of the uh, photos I see in my past. Uh, but in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in, in this movement, my mom and dad started working at a halfway house in Dallas called the House of Faith uh, with uh, really women that were coming off the streets that had experienced prostitution and then at that time um, heroin addicts. And so every time, every Sunday after church, uh, we'd go down to the House of Faith at, uh, at about 1 o'clock and have lunch, and I'd stay down there until, um, until 8 o'clock when we'd come home. And it, this was a normal thing for me as a, <clears throat> as a 5 or 6-year-old to do that for a number of years. I think really when we began Mercy Street here about 25 years ago, it just felt like home because that was some of my earliest memories. Um, um, it, it's, it's really, I have these pictures in an old uh, photo album. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a photo album is, you can, <laughs> you can Google it. Um, and um, I have all these pictures of these like, like ex-heroin addicts and women coming off the streets that are like either holding me or I'm playing with them. And I just think, wow, what a freak show. Um, I don't know if I'd do that with my, you know, but it was just really shaping to my inner sense of, of I, I guess I look back and I think, oh, yeah, I mean, God is a border crosser, you know, crosses every boundary and border. Um, and I think I learned that from a mom. Um, but I've got this picture of me in Lake Dallas. Uh, I have Peter Frampton hair, you know, I've got the wings going, you know, got, uh, again, Google Peter Frampton. Um, <laughs> Or better yet, Leif Garrett. Um, yeah. Um, and, uh, um, and I'm being baptized with um, a bunch of these other kind of folks at the House of Faith. And, um, and at that time, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Right? I mean, I just think, okay, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. This is what Christians do. We get, we get dunked, sprinkled. Um, whatever the, the, the form is, um, but it's an identification with something. Um, and so I think that when we, when we come to talk about baptism, there's a lot of different ideas about it. There's a lot of different ways that we can think about it. There's some uh, theologies that say that it is a magical force field, that if you have not experienced this, your soul um, is in deprivation and you will go to hell, right? Um, I think... I think that's not true. <laughs> um, I think the love of God um, transcends all that. But I do understand um, I've held babies in my arms that have died um, in birth and have baptized babies. I have baptized um, people as they are dying that, um, from deep illness and everything in between. And there's something about this ritual that I think is really important that we unpack a bit. Uh, one of the ways I think that we, uh, I, there, there's, a, 
there's a clip out of uh, Nacho Libre that I want to show because I think it's a really good. Are y'all ready for some spiritual stuff? <laughs> okay. Uh, that I think it's interesting in the way that some ways that we think about baptism as, uh, as force field, as something that maybe other people don't, as whatever. And I think it gets to it, and I love this movie anyway. And it's just an excuse to show a little Nacho Libre on a Sunday. So you got, y'all ready? All right, let's do it. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... Felicidades. We enter into the life of the church, and we don't know really what baptism is. We think maybe, you know, it's going to give us something. It's going to help us with uh, the things that we've got in front of us, whether it's uh, uh, big-time wrestling or uh, our children or whatever, that we're going to get a different gear because of this ritual. Um, and we find often that that does not happen. <laughs> that, um, and so what I want us to do a little this, this morning is to press in to that space that I think, um, because in, in the book of Mark, this is the first event in the life of Jesus. It doesn't start with um, uh, the wise men. It doesn't start with the nativity. This is the oldest book, the, the closest gospel to the history of Jesus, written about probably um, 10 years to 15 years after he died. The other gospels were written much later than that. This is the original gospel, and it starts in the baptism of Jesus. It starts in this place. It doesn't start with heavenly hosts. It starts with this man named John that uh, baptized Jesus in the Jordan River and this event that God shows up and says some things over the life of Jesus and then immediately he's pushed into the desert. Um, And I want us to look at that uh, a bit. I think I've talked about at least this um, image before, but it's really been, when I think about baptism, it comes up for me all the time. The earliest um, um, uh, icon of baptism, you see Jesus in the River Jordan uh, naked uh, um, except uh, for, uh, for his waist, and he's pushed down underneath the River Jordan. Literally, he's being pushed down by uh, the Spirit of God in the River Jordan. Uh, you've got the disciples on one uh, side of this, uh, this image that are holding the clothes of Jesus and on the other, um, angels waiting. And underneath the feet of Jesus are these demons, these what, what are called the river demons, and which is just super odd, right? And when I think about this, what I begin to realize is that there's a guy named Karl Barth, who's this German theologian, who... Um, who has this idea that, um, and, and we, we kind of take this, um, if we go back to Genesis 1, where, where the, the earth was void and formless, 
and God was brooding over the waters. That the waters often within the Old and New Testament symbolize many things, but one of the things that they symbolize is chaos. That what, what God is doing is brooding over the chaos of the waters. And that we see Jesus going into, in the New Testament, the water of chaos. Right? And we begin to realize that often there, then when I give my life to Jesus, that often what happens is that baptism then locates us somewhere. Where I want baptism to pull me out of something, to give me a force field, to make me walk or allow me to walk into things and have a different gear than anybody else has. Why? Because I've been baptized, I've said these words, I'm doing this stuff. What we come to see is that the... um, The entrance into baptism locates us somewhere. It locates us where Jesus is. This Jesus that descends into our very humanity and locates locates himself within the very spaces of human chaos. I don't like this, folks. Right? I like the kind of spirituality that says... When I give my life to Jesus, I get another gear. Jesus as protein drink. Jesus as force field. And what we are invited into is this space that says, um, this is the exact nature of your life. And it's the only place that God works. And so... Baptism locates us in our life as it is. Baptism says um, there are going to be a thousand distractions in your life. A thousand things that you will want to numb yourself over. A thousand ways not to look at your one and only life and to say, is this how I want to live my life? Am I living my life or am I living my parents' life or am I living stress life? Am I living um, a, a life that says if I achieve this, I'll be okay? And what baptism says is that we, um, we're committed in some ways to face our life as it is. Not as we wish it to be, not as we um, would hope that there's some fairy tale out there that would make it to be, but that we face our life as it is. Because your life as it is right now with the chaos, with the pain, with the addiction, with the kids that you don't know what to do with, with the fear that lives inside of you, with the diagnosis that you don't know what to do with, with the things that wake you up at three in the morning is the life that God wants to enter into with you. And that's the only life that God can enter into. Because God so loves you, the world, that he enters into that space, not in the life that you're projecting that you want to have in front of me and I'm projecting it in front of you, but the life that we actually have, Jesus descends into. And so baptism becomes not a force field that um, surrounds us, but an invitation into our life as it is. And because of that, um, we are then entered, I think, um, um, into a different story. It places us into a different story. 
And I think the story that it places us into is a story that we see when John baptizes Jesus and he comes out of the, the, the waters of chaos, not as a life that he wants, but the life that he has. There is a pronouncement of, oh, this is my beloved son. Deeply pleased in you. That often what we end up having is we can hear the voice of God's love inside of us. But there's also a lot of other voices around us. Are you all aware of that? (laughs) Of other voices in your life besides the voice of love? And partly I think all of the uh, Christian life, at least a large part of it for me in this season of my life, is to attune my um, voice, my, my hearing, my um, life to the place that brings me back home to that place of love, that place of belonging. Um, I, I want us to do something a little freaky for a second, okay? <laughs> not too freaky. It's not like, dear God, I'm never coming back here freaky. But um, um, I want us to do something um, just for a second. I want you to uh, sit in a way that kind of um, upright and kind of, You may want to take some stuff out of your hands. This is not Ouija board stuff either, okay, folks? So we're just going to... I want you to um, um, close your eyes for a second. And just, uh, just breathe. For some of you, this is the first breath space that you've had all week. Just, just breathe. like a pond that has been stirred up and all the particles, let those things that you're worried about, that you brought in here, just let them settle at the bottom. They're still there. They'll be there later. In the place of your own heart, I want you to go to that place Where God says, I love you. <clears throat> Maybe it's just a place where you felt really home. Okay, amen. If you can get to that place, um, often that's the place where um, God wants to draw us into to begin to expand so that we react out of that place. If you don't have that place in you and it's like, wait, where is that thing? then I think that the work of the Spirit is to create that place in us, that place of solidity, that place of a different voice, that place that um, begins to disrupt all the other voices in our lives. And that's the voice of God's love, the Holy Spirit that is within us. I did my Ph.D. in identity development among people that experienced deep trauma. 
One of the theories of um, identity development is that there's not a self in there. Erickson, Freud, Jung all say there's a self in there, and that what we have to do is just chip away at the self, and the true self has always been in there. There's all these other, there's another theory I really am interested in that says, actually, that's not true. We come into this world with impulses and desires and all these kind of things. But in our um, experiences as humans, we begin to take on these voices, voices of coaches, voices of parents. Uh, and they're not just uh, um, audible voices. There's a presence. And that these presences in our lives begin to organize themselves around how do we get our needs met? How I know that I'm going to be okay? And that our, our, all of these voices in our life organize themselves around often our own self-preservation. Am I going to be enough? Is there enough? And those are the constant driving presences often in our life. And that often we don't recognize those voices. We just think that that is how it is. Right? That is the truth. And so when you find yourself doing what you do not want to do, and you don't want to share that with someone, you think, because they will know who I am, and if they knew who I was, I will not get what I really need, which is a deep sense of belonging and love. And so we begin to, um, these voices that we're not even sure about, not even knowing how to often bring to our own consciousness, actually run the show of our lives. And so we come to baptism, and there's this one voice that we have to um, begin to think about and order our life to make a more central voice in our life, and this is the voice of God's presence. This is a voice um, that says there is a different story about you. There's a different way forward about you. There's a different way of doing this. And I think it's really interesting to me that out of that deep sense of, of Jesus receiving and hearing and everybody else hearing around him saying that this is, the, this is my beloved son. I'm, I'm just head over heels this dude. It's a loose translation. <laughs> but that's how I hear it. And I think it's very interesting that right after that, it says that the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. And I've often wondered, what is that? Is, is that about, um, all right, let's see how you do, you know? Or is that, um, is that just how it is? that often we don't get to determine where the wilderness comes and, and where the trials come. Dang it, I thought I did a really good job being a dad. I thought I loved my kids as a mom, though I shouldn't. What's going on? I exercised every day. What the hell is this diagnosis about? I'm a good person. Why can't I get the break that I need financially? <clears throat> and the second half of our life spirituality begins to lay those questions down, and we just realize that who knows why or how we enter into the desert, but we do. We are. 
Some of you are there today in really profound ways. And I think that all of us, as um, my mom used to say, we're going into the desert or coming out of it. That's kind of the, the loop that we have in our lives. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, the amen effect. Some of us are walking to the left, holding on to losses and things that we don't know what to do with and, and behaviors that we don't know how to share with. Um, we, we don't know what to do about that. So many of us are walking to the left. Others of us are walking to the right thinking or knowing, okay, I'm feeling the sunlight of God's spirit. The work is to cross each other's paths so that we might, as James says, bear one another's burdens. Listen to each other's stories. But often what ends up happening is that in the wilderness, we have this deep sense of shame that comes up from the bottom of our life. I've really been thinking a lot about shame and baptism for some reason. I think what's happening in the life of Jesus in the wilderness is that Jesus is dealing with, um, with deep shame. I think he's having to confront the fact that all the stories about him, son of God, he's been confronted with these things that on his own, in his own sense of his own Jewish identity, dude that's about 30 years old, just wanting to crush it in life, right? Best opportunity in the world. He goes into the desert and is confronted with, um, um, if he does it in the normal way, he will get the normal result, which is not going to work out. And so he is confronted with these different, um, what the scripture says, temptations. Temptations to go it alone and to achieve everything. Temptations to make sure that there's enough, enough food, enough resources, enough, and that it's up to him to produce enoughness. Temptation that when somebody asks, um, what do you do to have a really, really good answer? Well, I'm the son of God. Thank you. <laughs> and to stand behind that identity. And he gets into the desert and realizes that with his own strength, his own power, his own sense of culture that is all around him, that he needs to be able to be in a different place in a relationship with the voice that says, you are the beloved. I got you. There's enough. You're not in control. You're going to die. It's not about you. Is this the way you want to live? And he begins to learn the way, I think, within um, the desert, the way of surrender. I think shame um, affects us all in different ways. And I'm beginning to think as I read more articles on this that it actually might be shame, not fear, that is our deepest reality. I had a therapist say, well, I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but I'm going to go ahead. Um, I, had a, I had a therapist one time tell me that um, I had so much shame inside of me because I felt like I was unable to save my mom from her cancer. And I was like, what? Does that make sense? Like, what? That doesn't. And they began to walk me through that there are these, these experiences that we have as, as people where we feel like we should have the resources, the strength 
to affect the outcome in things in our life that are deeply important to us. And when we get to those things, to those experiences, and we realize that we don't, we feel less than, we feel like we're not enough, and a deep sense of shame sets in from the bottom of our ground. And so, I think that most of us in this room walk around with loads of shame that look like anxiety, that look like depression, that look like you're crushing it in the world, that look like you're achieving. And I think underneath a lot of that stuff, and I'm not just saying there's not joy and there's not hope, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm saying often when we get down to some of the motherboard of our lives, there's a deep sense that you are the person on that little habit trail that's just got to just be going. You're that duck that maybe on the surface of your Facebook and IG accounts, you're just looking like a cool cucumber. And underneath, you're waking up all the time wondering, or you're also wondering, like I did, why do I feel crappy all the time? Where is this coming from? And I think that begins the entrance into a desert that becomes our liberty. And so I think shame is a vector. It's not, sometimes there's an idea that scientists or in the natural world, that shame is how it is. And we're all kind of born with it, so we just kind of operate around it. And I think that, that shame actually is a vector in our lives. Because a vector talks about the magnitude and the direction. A vector is really about a compass-driven thing that has a, um, um, a magnitude of it and a vector. And, and the desire of shame at the end of the day is to isolate us, to keep us outside of relationship, to keep us in that place where we're knowing things about maybe God and about spirituality, but our deepest experiences is that we are cut off, not enough, cannot achieve and affect the outcome of the things that are deeply important to us that we want to do. And though, so that many of us end up treating spirituality like something we will mouth to try to trickle down to get to that space. And so I will stand in front of you all and I will lie saying the Apostles' Creed, even if I doubt it. We will stand in church and we will sing songs that we want to experience, but in our own deepest experience have never experienced that. And we will say that with a hope that maybe it will hit us in some time, some place, some way. And that what often shame does is it doesn't allow voice to be given to that space because we don't know how to voice it. All we know how to do in our culture is to work, to struggle, and then to shove that stuff down so nobody knows, nobody sees, because I don't want to see it myself. We begin to see that Jesus heads into it heads into his identity, the parts of his story where shame um, has a possibility of taking root. If you are the son of God. And Jesus has to deal with if you were strong enough. If you were. 
and all those little voices that come around us to chew on our soul, to make us work harder, to prove that we are of value and that we are worth. And every day, I think the uh, first chapter of Mark gets played out in our life in a thousand different ways. In a thousand different interactions with people. Prove it. Measure up. Suck it up. Work harder. Don't you show that. Put that in a part of your life and bury that up. And then we come to church asking God to do some kind of Harry Potter crap and make it all better. And we invest in ways of our own religious life that are killing us. And I think Paul is right. Let me show you a more excellent way. As I read about the neurobiology of um, shame, this is super interesting to me. A guy named Kurt Thompson has helped me with this as a neurobiologist. That shame disintegrates different neural networks and their corresponding functions within each individual brain. Pause right there. I'm going to take you to nerd school right now, okay? So stay with me. Shame disintegrates. So the experience of shame as children, as adults, as young adults, wherever you are on your path, it, there, is a, uh, um, there is a biological, a neural network function that shame has. It doesn't have words. It's an experience that we put words to. We put words like not enough, humiliation, denigration, uh, crappiness, whatever those words in ourselves that we put to those things, those are deep experiences. Shame disintegrates different neural networks and their corresponding functions within each individual brain, isolating them, causing the mind to be decreasing, uh, causing the mind to be decreasingly flexible in its capacity to adapt to its environment. Okay, can I, can I explain that? You have an ex please. <laughs> okay, let's pray and go home. Um, <laughs> what happens in the brain, uh, uh, in the shame brain, is that um, it tells you over and over and over, this is how it is. It paints the story for you. It doesn't allow for any kind of imaginative connections. It says you're screwed. You're not enough. This is how it's always going to be. It doesn't allow the brain to be flexible to think about anything outside of itself than that experience and the voices that come out of that experience that then limit us. It causes the mind to be decreasingly flexible. Shame both actively dismantles and further prohibits this process of integration, leading to disconnection between mental processes within an individual's mind as well as individual members of a community. So I end up feeling I'm not enough, I don't have enough shame about the stuff and the way that my life is working. And it don't, doesn't just affect my neural pathways and dis disintegrates that and keeps them all locked in. It disintegrates my ability to come to you, to connect with you, to be with you and you with me. And so we show up in religious institutions often or religious places wanting connection and often getting in our cars going, oh, that, that was okay. 
mean, you know, it's okay. But we want more. We want a deep sense of belonging. We want to be known. And often then the price of that, the healing of that, requires to be vulnerable with other people in embodied action. Like there's no way out of this, folks. The way out of the shame brain is not up here. It's between you. It's being able to be with people long enough to hear their story. It's being with people long enough that therapist that said, Matt, you're driven by shame because you couldn't save your own mother. Well, crap. That's right. And that led me to a lot of other shameful things within my own addiction. It led me to a lot of things, um, like using religion as a way of trying to, to God, can you, can you zap me and heal this? I've said the right words. I'm doing the right things. I'll go to seminary as long as you outroot this. And the Holy Spirit constantly says, there is no zap. And even if you get zapped, you still have to do the work of this. The work of your own humanity. The work of being led into the desert where you're not enough. And, and understanding the voices that that leads you to. The places that that leads you to. The configuration of your own life and your defense mechanisms to keep you away from those things. And the invitation of the Spirit always in the desert is that that voice of God's love, you are beloved. You are loved. Now share with another person those bonds so that you can internalize that. You can become that. You can become a community that's messed up and healing. You can become a community that's not mouthing stuff about Jesus that we don't know is true, not true, whatever, and that level of belief. That we can sink into the deeper spots of our own lives and we can begin to be set free by the Spirit Return to that very place of love. Baptism is not a force field. It's an invitation into that space. Baptism will not save you from anything. It's just raising your hand saying, would you show me um, a way that I can't find on my own? And I promise you, I promise you there's folks in the desert that you will find, that you'll be in to um, share your story with. And the very healing of God will somehow break out in that place. I really hope that that happens in your life. I hope that happens in my life. I hope we discover the Jesus in the place that... Uh, we least expect him, but most need him. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, We thank you that um, your love finds us, that your presence um, constantly is a call not to produce but to become. 
And oh God, we ask in the name of Jesus that in this community, we might find each other at Avalon Diner and at coffee shops all over the city, in living rooms, on Zoom calls, telephone calls, hearing each other's story, walking each other home. Oh God, would you mature us into that place that we all might be changed? Might we heal this week? Would you lead us forward? It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you back next week.